Hey, we're back after several weeks off, a holiday hiatus, so to speak. Uh, the Poker Zoo is back in production. Uh, this week, Persuadio's great interview with the Poker Guys was fun for me to listen to while editing, and I think you'll enjoy it also. Welcome back to the Poker Zoo. The Poker Zoo. Who is this? As we've mentioned in the past, many of you know, I listen to a lot of different podcasts, and one of those is Jamila Ford's Working Singer podcast, and she mentioned last week that she was having trouble getting her website to resolve ever since mid-December whenever she changed hosting companies, and so I sent her an email, said I would help her with that at no charge, and she was nice enough to give me a shout-out. If you listened to last week's episode, I was kind of uh, opining about my website, theworkingsingerpodcast.com, because it was down. There were hosting issues and all of that kind of thing, and I wasn't really getting that much um, help from the host provider. It was dragging on, and a listener who heard the episode last week, the amazing Dean Martin, not of the Rat Pack fame, <laughs> but, uh, you know, reached out and, and said that that was something he could help me with, and he was happy to do it, and he saved my life last week. So I really... Really appreciate it. So I've got my good karma built up for the entire year with uh, that good deed. And Jamil also gave us a shout-out for the Poker Zoo podcast. Who knows how many listeners we'll get from that, but it was at least fun to hear. You can find this podcast episode as well as all of the other episodes at Persuadio.nl or simply do a search for the Poker Zoo. Uh, find us there. Love to get uh, your feedback and ratings on uh, your podcast aggregator of your choice. Some say he is the little blue pill for poker players. And in fact, his students need to be careful to not overperform at the table. We, however, just call him Persuadio. Well, welcome back to the Poker Zoo. Happy New Year to backroom members and to our wider audience. I'm going to kick off 2020 with two of poker's most prolific content creators. We read and watch a lot about vlogs in particular these days and streaming services, but in terms of regular poker content, both audio and visual over the contemporary poker era, it, was, it would be hard to have outscored Jonathan Levy and Grant Dennison AKA the poker guys or two poker guys on Twitter. So in addition to talking about their new and I believe first book, we'll get into the origins of that content as sort of an introduction or a refresher to their contributions if you're not familiar with them. So let's get going. How are you, Jonathan and Grant? Uh, this is Grant and we're doing great. Uh, we're very happy with that introduction. It was a glowing introduction and that's <laughs> the type of thing that we like. We enjoy praise. <laughs> yeah. Um, Wow, most prolific. I love it. I never yeah. thought about that, but it feels good. Yeah, so now thanks. I'm going to say that all the time. Yeah, definitely working that into the uh, Twitter profile. Yeah, and thanks, thanks for having us. Uh, we're happy to be on the podcast. Well, it's not really a, an opinion. Don't, don't you have so many podcasts that you have to sell them offline? Um, yeah, I mean, it's kind of like we, we switched feeds a couple years ago and we decided that was an opportunity to kind of get rid of the old podcast and start a new feed. And, and so, yeah, the feed on iTunes does not necessarily go back infinitely. So if yeah. people do desire our very old podcasts <laughs> with, you know, 
2015 era analysis, which is slightly different than current analysis, and that is available for sale. Although at this point, we only do it by request. But but you are correct. We we also we make four pieces of media every week. I guess not including extra oh. things, which sometimes we'll put out. We have two videos and two podcasts every week. So yeah, I guess that is that is a lot. Now that we stop and think about it. So yeah, I guess that's factual. Well, that's a great segue into who you are. I mean, what are you doing in your life that went so wrong that you're making four things out of <laughs> poker every week? That's a, that's a fair question. It really is. Uh, <laughs> go ahead, John. Well, I was a uh, professional poker player for years and years, um, for about a decade. And I, I also I had a previous career as well, but I sort of transitioned into uh, poker. And at some point, well, first of all, actually, Grant and I started a poker coaching business maybe, what, seven or eight years ago in Portland, Oregon? Yeah. Something, something like, like that. And, uh, and this is sort of the origin of the podcast as well, now that I think about it. And Grant, at some point, as we were trying to pub- publicize our local coaching business in Portland, said we should make a podcast to try and, you know, build up some clientele. And so we started, and within three episodes, we decided we should really make it worldwide facing rather than just local, because who listens to a local podcast? I don't know, not enough people is the answer. So we changed the format around. And over, after about two years into that, I got burnt out on poker pretty, pretty hardcore and just didn't want to play. Hmm. And that coincided, luckily, with the rise of our YouTube channel. And so within six months, we were having enough sponsorship and things like that to uh, sort of pay the bills. And here we are, years later, still doing it. Uh, yeah, we've been fortunate with sponsorship so far. We have a great sponsor, Nitrogen Sports, and they've been sponsoring us for a while. And that's really what has kept us afloat and kept us as guys who don't have to play full-time poker anymore. As Jonathan said, he was a poker player for 10 years. I was a poker player professionally for about five or six before kind of transitioning to full-time this plus, you know, a world series trip every year and some side trips and such. Um, and as for me, as for my failures that led to this, it was uh, <laughs> graduating college without a plan in the year 2009, which was the worst year to graduate college. And that's how I got into poker. So tell me a little bit about your poker career. I mean, people know you, as what you are but you know what was poker like then what 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 were the games like for you as pros and and what did you get out of them uh okay so for me i we so it this requires a little background about portland uh portland has an interesting municipal law that allows for something called social gaming clubs which was fortunate to discover after Black Friday because uh, I was playing online for a living when Uh Black Friday hit, as many people were. And I soon discovered that Portland actually has these clubs that have, at the time, they had $10 door fees for all day. And you could, they had tournaments and cash games and you could play all these different things. And door fees means then there was no rake at all. Yeah, no rake at all in the cash games. And so if it was a $500 tournament, which is rare, but if there was, it would still be a $10 door fee type of thing. So I stayed afloat by playing mostly the tournaments in Portland and, you know, sometimes traveling for tournaments and of course, a little bit of a World Series trip here and there. But for the majority of the time that I was playing professionally, it was these local clubs in Portland where nobody knows about like what the results are and stuff like that. But I'm just sitting there playing these tournaments and grinding out a living that way uh, after Black Friday, of course, which was a very sad day for everybody. Mm. I personally had a really different path there. Um, I had been an autism expert, actually, and discovered poker when uh, Chris Moneymaker was on TV back in 2003 started playing in underground clubs in Brooklyn. And when you're talking about like, what was poker like, man, it was so different back then. And so, so great. Uh, All it took was, you know, 
reading Harrington and Hold'em and I, you could do okay in big events and things like that, like tournaments and things. I remember just going to playing these underground clubs, playing No Limit, like one, two, No Limit, uh, having learned about Hold'em and just playing really tight and doing great. Like all I had to do was just have it and everyone always paid off and it was amazing. Well, how, how big were these, uh, these tournaments? You're making it sound very lucrative, but I mean, you're talking about not a, a well-known poker state and a, not a well-known poker economy. I mean, how, what, how good really was it in the end? I, I, we're talking about two different things, I guess. Um, so Grant was in Portland all this time. I was living in New York back, ah, in, back when, okay. when I'm talking about. And so when I, when I'm, I'm referring to things like the World Series of Poker. Like okay. in 2006, I, I, won a, I was on a full tilt and won two different bracelet events on full tilt, meaning like events to get into bracelet events, not actual bracelets. And so I won a $1,500 seat and a main event seat in 2006. That was the Jamie Gold year. And I just remember playing in those events. Those were my first ever WSOP events. And all I had read really for tournament stuff was literally Harrington on Hold'em. And it was more than enough to do really well because the games were just so soft and easy and things like that. Now, admittedly, it was a $1,500 event and a 10K event. Those are still, the main event, those are still relatively soft and easy comparatively to some of the other much tougher events. But I was also playing online, playing on party poker and things like that, uh, Limit Hold'em specifically. And the play there was so insanely bad. You know, like people would call you down no matter what, no matter the price with gut shots and things like that to the river all the time. And you could just bet for value basically and, and, you know, go eat, go eat dinner every night. It was, it was a piece of cake. Uh, yeah. So, to, sorry. Go ahead, Chris. No, no. So that takes you, that took you to Portland and then go ahead, Grant. Uh, okay. So in Portland, uh, I want to reemphasize how incredible the scene actually is in Portland, because as mm. you said, it's relatively unknown. Um, but due to these municipal laws being around for a while, it's actually grown quite a bit and there's a decent player pool, but the, and just to reiterate the rake structure, you can play like a two, five game with no rake for a $15 door fee all day. It's incredible. And, uh, so back in the day when I was, I was a tournament pro doing these things, the tournaments, as you mentioned, were relatively small. And to be clear, there were not multiple, like there weren't like 15 tournament pros in the city. I was like, maybe one of the only two or three people who was able to make a living through tournaments in these tournaments, but the fields were incredibly soft compared to the, even the national fields at the time, the buy-ins were not huge. There was anywhere between like $40 and $300, you know, and uh, the prizes usually ended up being like the best weekly prize would be like uh, $4,000 for first type of type of thing. So it was quite a grind, uh, but nobody knew what they were doing. So that was pretty helpful. By now, Portland's gotten a little tougher, but still kind of like everywhere feels pretty soft. Yeah. And that, that's actually a great and I ended up meeting was in one of these po Portland poker clubs. And I think we were sitting next to each other and we recognized that someone else who had any clue at all, this is like 2010, what the hell was going on? You know, <laughs> oh, you have, tw you have nine blinds. You're not, you know, min raising, folding to a, a re-raise or something like that. Like you're just shoving. You understand like how to play 10 blinds or less. Just really basic stuff that no one else seemed to have any clue about. So that brings us to Portland today, and then we'll get back to, to your personal paths, because it's still a very interesting scene, right? Um, there's a lot of different places. They close and they reopen. Mm -hmm. They're open in rather strange uh, locales, uh, if you know what I mean. And uh, you, are, you were centered, at least as far as I know, at one of the best, uh, Portland Meadows, which is a very special kind of place. Uh, what's going on in Portland right now? Well, uh... 
Portland Meadows did have to shut down because the property was bought by, I think, Prologis, uh, some, some gigantic shipping and receiving thing that's going to, you know, knock down Portland Meadows, which is an old racetrack and create like a giant warehouse. Um, but the owner who is a personal friend of ours and business partner is determined to continue. And he's already found a new location is going to be reopening and, uh, he does a great job running the club. So yeah, Portland Meadows is the place that, that we typically enjoy playing in Portland. It's the biggest club in Portland, but there are three or four other smaller places that mostly have cash games, but some tournaments as well. So that brings us to one of your, your showpiece uh, products, which is Poker Time. Talk about that. How did that get started? How has that gone? Give us some behind the, the scene peeks at what's, what's up with that show. Sure. Uh, well, so the owner of Portland Meadows Poker Club had an RFID table anyway. And we had been talking about potentially, uh, he wanted to find ways to use it. And we, so we, we got together and sort of put our heads together and said, well, why wouldn't we do a cash game or a tournament or something on this and broadcast it out? We were really champing at the bit at that point to do poker commentary. It seemed exciting to us and uh, a fun thing to try. And so uh, it was not hard at all. At that point, I think we started doing like two five or something like that. It was like a really small time cash game. Five five, I believe. Um, were we doing five five? So we did it every week, and uh, we would actually film it and get four episodes out of each uh, filming, uh, more or less. Anyway, so we get a, so we film it and get about a month's worth of uh, production out of it, and we put out an episode every Tuesday on our channel. And uh, at some point, Brandon Cantu, who a lot of people know of, anyway, he's a poker pro, came back to Portland, which is where he's from, and he wanted to play on the game, and he said, "Let's make it five ten. I think we can get enough players to make it five ten. We had never really tried. We didn't think it was possible, and we made it. We did it. It worked, and then we've never looked back. And it's always been a five ten game ever since. We actually had a ladies' night, uh, which was going to come out. Rec- uh, I would say in the next month or two, and uh, they they wanted to play five five, which but then they quickly uh, <laughs> changed it to five five with a straddle. So it was five five ten, and it was suddenly the biggest game we'd ever uh, spread. So. The game has grown. It's been, I think, almost three years now of us producing this show, and it's, uh, it's going strong, and we never have problems filling it. We've had lots of big-name people come and play at this point. We've had Bart Hansen, Andrew Nimi, Brad Owen, Matt Vaughn has come and played a few times. Johnny Vibes has played. I think that's it. Um, and then, of course, our local sort of smaller, sm- less well-known po- uh, Portland celebs also. celebs. We, we're trying to get a few of the really big-name guys from Portland or in the area around um, who play like in the poker masters and things like that, but that's a little tougher to, to pull the guys who play hundred K buy-ins and things like that. Interesting. So what's the, what's the business plan here for you guys? Just so we understand where you're coming from. Do these drive coaching prospects? Um, is there some profitability to this? Is it part of owning the club, uh, et cetera? Could you tell us about the whole poker guys empire? Uh, sure. So, like the origin story of the poker guys explained it was uh initially the idea was to sell coaching but at this point we rarely even talk about coaching we'll do coaching if requested but it's not Mm. something that we attempt to sell um it's not something that we're interested in spending 20 30 hours a week on or anything like that that's not really our goal at this point um as i had briefly mentioned before we're fortunate enough to have a very good sponsor who values us greatly and that helps us out as far as like making this a profitable venture for us. At the same point, uh, a lot of it is about brand building and people understanding who we are, what type of poker analysis and humor we bring across. And that type of brand building can lead to other opportunities, we believe, including stuff like our book, which 
we think is like just another good brand builder, but also an example of something that can come out of having a strong brand that comes from producing such prolific content as you called it earlier. Yeah, I think part of the, the secret sauce for us is finding uh, sponsorship partners, which we've done not just with our current sponsor, Nitrogen, but with some past sponsors as well, where our audience is valued highly enough by them and we can convert our audience to become players on their site and things like that at a high enough rate that it ends up being a really strong value proposition for them. And so we've been able to do that really well. Like I'm always surprised whenever I look at the, the numbers for our current sponsor, for example, to see like people who've signed up through our affiliate link, just how much um, they've played on the site and how much they've uh, put in on the site um, fi- financially and things like that. It's, it always really surprises me how, how big the numbers really are. There are seven figures, you know, and it's like, wow. So, so we, so I'm always surprised that we bring that much value, but apparently we do. And so as a result, our sponsors um, are really happy to uh, keep us afloat. Well, that's good news. It can be hard to compete with say live at the bike or poker go or the other streaming services. Uh, Do you you feel like you're at the level you want to be? What, what What is the ultimate goal? Well, I have a dream and it is, not what we're doing right now, which is currently we're putting uh, an hour every Tuesday of, uh, of our 510 cash game. And what I want, and I think we're, we're looking to move towards, is a more um, similar product to like a Live at the Bike or the Poker Go stuff, where we're going to do hopefully a longer um, weekly stream, live stream cash game. Because right now it's not streamed. Right now we edit it later and put it out later and things like that. And thus it's weekly. But I like to do something every week, even though it's a lot more work for us. And I think for a while, we'd make a lot less money doing it. But still, to me, that's, that's a way to maybe build a real audience with that. Because that, that show is a much smaller audience than some of our other things like our podcast. And I think it's, it's a good show. And it's something where, unlike Poker Go or even a lot of Live at the Bike, it's free. And so we think there's a lot of really good players on it. Now, granted, there's a lot of really not good players on it also, but we have a lot. We have some very um, steady, consistent pros who play on it. And of course, some big names come as well. Our hands is going to keep coming back, actually, too. He's pretty excited to keep playing on it. So my dream, anyway, is a weekly, longer streamed game that's live out there on Facebook, on Twitch, as well as YouTube. That's where I see it going, ultimately. And uh, to expand upon that from a slightly different angle, I agree with that. I, I anticipate that we're going to, make a big swing at the stream game thing. But as far as the comp- competing with things like poker, going live with the bike, our competitive advantage is not going to be in our depth or skill of analysis with some of the types of analytical minds they can bring in. We're not going to be able to, to be as qualified as, you know, Christian Soto or, or whoever they can bring in. Who's one of the most elite players in the world. Although we do value our analysis and think it is quite good to be clear. We think our secret sauce to, and our competitive advantage is kind of our weird, quirky humor thing and our rapport that we bring that is kind of unseen elsewhere in poker. And we, we let ourselves go off the rails in a way that a lot of, I think, no other poker show does, basically. I mean, if you've listened to our podcast, we've done like 22 minutes on, on just random crap sometimes. And sometimes it, some people love it, some people don't, but yeah. the people who love it really love it. And we're not going to be better at analysis than Christoph Vogel saying, but we're going to be funnier than him. And we're also going to be good at analysis. So we think those things combined can be a competitive advantage for us in, in that realm eventually. Yeah. I mean, right. it's, it's weird. In some ways, like what we've, what we've, without really meaning to, we're sort of monetizing our rapport as much as anything else, I think. And uh, we believe we have a rapport. <laughs> yeah. And as a result, we've been, we're we've trying to told, monetize We've been it. told by our mothers that we have a rapport. Yeah. 
Okay. Well, keep keep repeating that to yourselves. <laughs> um, actually, no, you are very funny, um, which is certainly has to be part of your appeal. But what is the feed? I mean, the market will speak for itself, right? What is the feedback that you get in terms of how you present yourselves and what you do? And I, I'm, I'm asking you this for a reason, because I'm going to bring up some strong feedback you got online in a bit. But what, what is the general reaction to you? Uh, I would say that in general, we mostly get positive feedback. Um, this is, of course, based on who's listening and who's watching. And a lot of it has to do with the YouTube algorithm as far as YouTube comments go. Like uh, the YouTube algorithm for a while back in, I don't know, 2016, was suggesting us to everybody who had ever watched a poker thing in their life. And we got a lot more negative feedback at that time because we were getting a lot of people who weren't expecting, you know, a break in, in the action for analysis or weren't expecting us to make a, a joke about Blade Runner or whatever we were doing. And they didn't <laughs> like right. that. And people's worst nature comes out on YouTube when they don't know what to expect. But I'd say in general, like our, our podcast reviews are quite good. We have a lot of reviews. Most of them are five stars. We do get a couple very negative reviews, but you know, <laughs> I think that's the case for, for any content creator. Certainly we get feedback. Mostly the negative feedback feels a little bit like they're just annoyed by us and that could be due to the, the humor. Some of it is a little bit more analytical and a little bit more, you guys should maybe think about this more type of things. And we take it all into account. Yeah. Um, I mean, our audience these days is fairly self-selected. So we get a lot of positive feedback, but that's also because people, they're the people who keep coming back. We, we have a lot of hardcore fans for sure who, you know, like we'll, we'll make some weird jokes on our podcast and someone will make a weird, you know, image well, like, and put it and tweet it at us of like me on a Segway, you know, trying to run over Al Pacino or things, something like that. Like that kind of stuff happens. Um, not all the time, but it's, it happens fairly regularly. And uh, so that, that fan base is clear. But at the same point, yeah, our, our humor is definitely not for everyone. Um, certainly there are people, as Grant was saying, who are better at analysis than us. Like Nick Shulman is better at analysis than us. That's just a fact. I don't think I'm, I'm hurting it. I'm breaking anyone's, you know, um, heart by saying that. And so like, we understand that like sometimes someone will come back and make, like we once made a video about Sam Trickett and we, we sort of took, we said very strongly in our video, we think this is a, um, not a bluff, but a value bet on the river. Yeah. And we think everyone on the internet who's saying otherwise is wrong. But, uh, and then Sam Trickett himself tweeted us and said, you guys are wrong. It totally was a bluff. And we had a little, a very friendly back and forth with him. We made a video saying, you know how we said you were all wrong? Never mind. This is what the stuff Sam told us and we're wrong and here's why and whatever. So yeah, so, so we understand that we're not always going to be right about everything, but part of our whole, our whole thing is we try and analyze the hands by the best players in the world on the forefront of poker. And so it's not surprising we're going to get some stuff incorrect sometimes because we're also doing it sort of by scratch. You know, we see a play and then we, we try and reverse engineer to figure out what the thinking is. Um, we're not always going to be right about that, but we're trying and uh, we learn a lot along the way. And it's really heartening, by the way, when someone like Daniel Negreanu where we'll, we'll say, we think Negreanu was doing this and this is why, and we'll get a lot of feedback. We've, Grant likes to bring up this one person who used to write to us multiple times and one time said, I've been watching Negreanu for years and you're completely wrong. He would never do it for these reasons and, and was really sort of mean. Um, and Negreanu actually tweeted at how we had the analysis perfect on that hand and he almost didn't want to share it with anyone because it was so good. So, you know, it's, it's always hard to know exactly if we're going to be right or not when we're trying to figure out what um, Dan Coleman is doing, but it's interesting to try and to try. And that's part of the fun of it for us and what keeps me coming back. Right. So that's, I mean, you're not the only ones, obviously, who take up this model where we look at a high stakes or a celebrity play 
and then sort of pick it apart, right? Everyone does that in a sense. When you get the negative feedback, um, for instance, there was some impatience on Matt Berkey's part with one of your podcasts, I believe. For sure. How do you take that? How, how does that fit into your paradigm? It really depends on the source a lot of the time. Um, the the most, most of the sources are anonymous to us, like the guy that Jonathan mentioned earlier with Negranu. And, and we, we take anonymous sources with a grain of salt because we typically assume the general poker playing population knows less than us on average, and unless they prove otherwise. With, uh, with a player of great fame and great success like Matt Berkey, of course, it's a much larger grain of salt. And, um, you know, we have our own theories as to why he came after us a little bit. And I, I think Jonathan should get into that. Yeah, I, I'm happy to talk about this. So, yeah, so Matt Berge clearly had a real issue with, I think it was a particular podcast we did. We actually, there was a little while when we were doing a bunch of his hands because they were so interesting and different than everyone else. And we were trying to figure out what he was doing and why. And there's at least one hand where I was saying, this just can't be good on the podcast. I don't, I, I understand, yes, it's, possibly forward thinking grant was sort of on the more maybe this is just really like super you know way 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 in the future we're going to look back at this and think this is amazing and we're and we were wrong but i was like yeah but right now this just clearly looks bad right i understand he's a famous person but still that doesn't mean he's inoculated from us you know critiquing his play so i i think uh, my personal guess is Berkey hears a lot of things from a lot of people about quote how bad he is and I, i'm not saying i actually think he's bad but i'm saying like you know that's like a lot of the poker world says, puts him down, I would say, right? And I think we maybe were the straw that broke the camel's back because he like listened to a lot of our stuff. We had done an interview with him about a year and a half ago or something like that. We really got along. He saw us at the World Series, not this year, but the year before, came up to both of us individually, recognized us, shook our hands, talked to us, was very friendly. I think he really didn't like that we said that. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and it was like, one critique too much is this is just my guess. I haven't talked to him about this, but one critique too much from the world. And so he sort of aimed his, his guns at us and fired away a little bit, which, which is fair enough. It is absolutely fair. It's certainly his right. And I, yeah. I, I think to expand upon that, I think we were a very good kind of a representative target for him because he's a guy, yeah. as anybody who sees critique of Matt Berkey knows that it is frequent because he plays unconventional poker. He does not play like the other super high stakes pros and he hears the critique from the super high stakes pros. He hears the critique from random anonymous people constantly, but we're in the middle there where we're not random anonymous people, but we're not super high stakes pros. So he can say, who the hell are these guys? Yeah. How dare they decide to comment on this 501 K game? They don't know what I'm doing. I know I opened queen eight of hearts under the gun and then called with queen high in the river when it didn't make sense, but <laughs> it's just because you guys don't get it. Right. Like, and, and you know what? That's fair. He's, Right. He might be right. And he's certainly allowed to, to feel like we were out of our depth there. But we do the best that we can with the information that we have. And the thing that always strikes me about this, though, is like part of Mer Berkey's whole thing, I think, is that he's seen by his opponents, not us, but his actual opponents as like um, maybe too spewy and um, like a fish in the game. And I think he actually said to us in his interview that that's a very profitable image to have. So I don't understand why he would actually come out publicly and say the poker guys, for example, aren't qualified to critique me. That sort of goes against the whole notion of like him trying to place himself as a fish in these games. And like, he's like hurting his own image if that's indeed the image he wants. So I think he just got, I think he just came from an emotional place. Like he just couldn't take it anymore, which is fair again. Like, I mean, I, I everyone gets emotional. I think it's totally fair considering how much critique he's received yeah. since his rise to prominence and 
mostly he's a super nice guy and takes it very well. Totally. Yeah. And, and, and factually, like he may be right about all of this, right? Yeah, it's absolutely. possible. We really are. Like there was a point I remember back in the day when we were always, you know, the way we used to play hold them, you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago compared to now, like we do things really differently in a lot of places, of course. And, uh, you know, it's possible he really is just way ahead of all this stuff. He's partnered with Christian Soto, who we respect as one of the best players out there, period. Um, and Christian really respects him and stuff. So that's meaningful to us. At the same point, our brand is to call it like we see it as best we can. And, you know, we, we acknowledge we're not perfect. But so For if sure. we think something is off, we're still going to say it. We're not going to act like just because it's from Matt Berkey or Dana Negreanu or someone else. That means it, it's beyond critique. That seems right. crazy. We do tend to give those players the benefit of the doubt, though. If, if it's just Joe Schmo in the World Series, open limping king four of hearts mm. under the gun, we're going to assume he's a bad player. But if Max Steinberg does it, we're going to be like, well, that's some sort of weird new thing he's doing. And it's pretty cool. Probably. Yeah. We, we immediately, yeah, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's true. If Max Steinberg is, you know, we seek to understand much yeah. more. So, um, like, what could this be about? You know, what's going on here and, um, and try to figure it out. That doesn't mean we ever, we always do. And sometimes we'll say this still seems bad, <laughs> Okay, but yeah. Well, that's, that's, sort of the creator's point of view. You're creating content and driving criticism and using your, your right to do that. But could you comment a little bit on the other side of it, which is the non-creators, but the rather vicious, you know, respondent, chat people, the, the people who are in uh, on streaming chats, people in comments, uh, forums, who are rather nasty on the whole, surprisingly nasty about what, people are doing in poker. It seems to me like a problem that people can't shut their mouth a little bit on the audience end. Well, I think uh, this is not only in poker, but pervasive throughout the internet. I think it's just clear that the anonymity provided by the internet allows people to vent their frustrations. And I've always said that I think some people go to play poker for a reason to get upset. You know, they, they just need some mm. outlet in their life, some reason to, to cl complain about a bad beat or how some player is an idiot at their table. And I think that can be exacerbated online and you can do it 15 times an hour online. If you want to, you find all the poker videos you want and make all the comments. You can say, oh, Persuadio is an idiot because he said this and it makes you feel better about yourself for a second because you feel superior. And I think a lot of people hide behind that anonymity and that veil online. Certainly in poker, it comes out as, you are bad at poker. That is, that is like the, the way that it manifests. But I think that's just something that is common to everything online that involves any level uh, of intellect. Yeah, I, th I think really it's the human condition. And it's the, like Grant's saying, the, uh, the, the veil of anonymity really makes it easier to, for like our true selves to come out maybe a little bit more. Like you don't have to be civil. Like you're safe from all the rules of civility. Uh, and so people really, really aren't. I got to tell you, when we first started making content, uh, especially on YouTube, which is where the commenters really run wild compared to like our podcast, where there isn't as much of an obvious forum for it. It's like they have to go on. They have to do more work to, to comment on it. And it's not as public and as direct. Um, but on YouTube in the beginning, the comments would bother me for sure because um, they were pretty, pretty direct and pretty intense. And there's some people who are clearly just hateful, who are just spewing hate speech. And that's one thing. But then there's a lot of others that are just mean you know, and aren't as directly hateful. And it, and it took me, I would say, as I would read every comment for years, for the first several years. And uh, I would say it took me a solid year, year and a half to sort of let that stuff really bounce off me. But I remember playing online poker like way back in the day, like in 2007. And when I was playing professionally, you know, so I'd play, you know, I 20 table. Oh no, yeah, sorry. I would, I would 12 table uh, uh, poker stars and stuff like that. And 
I would get called a moron, you know, multiple times an hour, no matter what. And I was playing at a, prof- I was playing professionally, you know, I was making, I was making good money playing. And yet I would still be called morons by people who clearly didn't understand very, very basic things. And so it also becomes a little bit easy to dismiss anyone who doesn't come from a reasonable point of view for the most part, although sometimes it can be hurtful. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, I've buried the lead um, long enough. Tell me all about your new book. I mean, I assume it's your first book, right? It is. I mean, right. I've actually written another book, but it's about, it was about autism. That was my previous career. Not, for, not for the same audience. Different audience. Yeah. Yeah. But this is our first <laughs> I'm not sure. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So it's called, How Can He Fold? With three question marks because, you know, we're expressive. And the subtitle kind of explains the book, Incredible Poker Hands Broken Down Decision by Decision. It is a text conversation between me and Jonathan about hands as they play out. Um, it's the best analysis we have to offer because we spent a year writing it. We really fine-tuned everything. We think it's fun. We think the chapters are just the right length at about three to five pages. Uh, we start with the simplest hands, although there's still something to learn there, ending with the most complex hands, which really you have to probably read a couple times to fully understand. I know that when we were doing the editing on the last couple of hands, I sometimes had to reread a paragraph or two to figure out exactly what we were saying. We think it is basically the a really good representation of our brand. It's, mm. it's deep poker analysis, but we still have a lot of fun with it. Yeah, it's, um, all, all the hands are tournament hands and they're almost all big time tournament hands, meaning coming from really big spots or something like that. The World Series of Poker main event, um, a final table on the EPT, things like that. And they're involving the best and most famous players in the world. So we have all the big names in there. There's a Phil Humuth hand, there's a, there's a Phil Ivey hand, Ike Haxton, uh, Joe McKeon and on and on. Also some players you haven't heard of who played really interesting hands in big spots that, that matter as well. Darvin Moon makes an appearance or two as well. Um, so that's important. But um, yeah, it's, it's, it's the hand, it's a, we wrote on the book, it's a poker book you'll actually read. And uh, as someone who owns like 20 to 25 poker books myself, and I've read most of them, there's a point where most poker books are either um, completely anecdotal or very technical. And this, is, this attempts to sort of bridge the gap and be fun and anecdotal and yet still really get into some analysis. And each chapter has key takeaways um, where we summarize what we think are the most important things from the chapter. So someone could really learn as well. It isn't just a fun poker read in our opinion. Right. The ultimate goal was, was for it to be that kind of easy, perfect middle where you can enjoy yourself and still learn at the same time. So that's the ultimate goal. We think we achieved it. We think we did a pretty decent job with it. <laughs> um, and to the Berkey question earlier, we don't pull any punches, you know, no matter who the player is, if we don't like a play, we're going to be honest about it, even though it's in print, it's there forever and they can read it whenever they want and yell at us on Twitter. That's fine. If we don't like a play, we say it in, in the book. And of course, when we like a play, we celebrate it as well. And we think that's really a key to the book as well as to, to not use kid gloves ever, no matter who it is. Yeah, I've, I've given it a read. I think you've succeeded rather marvelously at bridging very simple situations with some you know, high level analysis, but can I go, can I go over a few things with you? Absolutely. Absolutely. Go yeah. for it. Um, you, and kind of working backwards, sticking with this rather funny Berkey theme. I don't know why he came up, but he's always getting into trouble, right? You start with a, I believe at the, if we look backwards, you have actually a vocabulary or a lexicon, a glossary is what it's called. Yep. Mm. And you are known by your audience for a couple different phrases, um, one of them being game theory disaster. 
Yes. Uh, could you talk a little bit about what that is for the audience? Sure. Um, it looks like Grant's going to look it up and actually read the, read the yeah, glossary. Let's, let's thing. figure uh, out the actual definition. I'll, I'll, I'll start talking about it, though. <laughs> the idea of a game theory disaster is when you make a bet that can only be called by a hand that is better than yours and will fold out all hands that are worse than yours. Right. The actual definition in the glossary says, refers to when a player makes a bet that has few potential positive outcomes, i.e. most hands that will call beat the player's hand and most hands that will fold lose to the player's hand. Yeah. So it's typically in a spot where you're not playing against an incredibly tricky opponent and you're betting middle pair on the river where the way the hand is played out, essentially your opponent will almost always fold worse middle pairs and worse pairs and almost always call with top pair and better. And that's just obviously an outcome that you don't want when you make a bet. Yeah. Um, a lot of times this will show up when I'm thinking about like um, some coaching clients who I've worked with where they'll go all in in certain spots, like on the river. And it's a hand where it's like, well, okay, you had kings. It was an ace high board. The third flush card came. There were two aces on the board and you shoved your pocket kings where trip aces is going to call. The flush is going to call. Full houses are going to call, but all the worst hands are going to fold. So like that is not a hand to shove there. Like you're just never going to get value. You're sort of, you're going to lose, all you do is lose chips by putting them in the middle. Okay. So that's so the idea. Wanted, yeah, that's very fair. I, I guess what I wanted to ask you specifically is, Aren't, in a sense, all mistakes game theory disasters? I guess, in a way, if you're playing a game, you could make, you could make that argument. Uh, I, I think that this term came from just, like, a spontaneous time where we said it on the podcast one time, and it kind of stuck and just kind of felt like it made sense. Um, go ahead, Jonathan. I, I mean, the, the thing is that there's a spectrum, right? So, like, there's... there's in poker and in, and in life, there are small mistakes and large mistakes. And we're all making, I think even the best players in the world, the Phil Galfons, are making small mistakes all the time, right? But one of the things that makes Phil Galfon good is he makes less really big mistakes than most players. So he's rarely going to put himself into a mistake level that we might call a disaster, or he would probably consider a disaster. So the, the word disaster is a big part of it, right? Um, okay. Everyone's going to make some level of game theory mistake anyway. I actually have an example of what I think is a perfect example of a game theory disaster. It happened between two players on our show Poker Time, mm. where uh, there was an open uh, three bet by player A and player B flats the three bet with jacks, and the flop comes ace, ace, king, and it checks around, and the turn is a jack, and player A bets, player B raises, player A three bets and player B moves all in for what was effectively 400 big blinds. Yeah. It was a, okay. it was a monster. So show. moving in with Jack's full there is a game theory disaster because you're getting called by the better full houses and you're folding out queen 10 pretty easily. Right. Which is a straight. So that feels like it's a huge disaster because of the size of, of the pot, but also it's a disaster as far as an analytical perspective. Like how could this ever be, have a good outcome? Right. So yeah, so like we all make mistakes. I make mistakes constantly when I play for sure. I'm like, was that really good? Was that, did I get value there or not? I'm not sure. You know, should I have shoved that or not? Um, it's thin, but that's different than this can't be right. You know, and that's, so on that level of like the spectrum is where it's, it's a clear disaster. And that's, that's what this term is, is all about. Great. Um, the other one that caught my eye was you refer constantly in the, uh, especially the podcast um, on hands is to the distribution argument. And then you give us a, a quick lesson in combinatorics. 
on the, the, the preceding chapter. How important is it in your mind in today's games with solvers and people really planning things out in advance to understand combinatorics? Has it become less important or more important? I think that's pretty interesting. I think uh, it really depends on who you're playing against. I, th I, th I think typically I would say, yes, it is very important to understand combinatorics because it can help you make borderline decisions and through distribution, of course. And that, that is extremely useful when you're playing against either a very good balance player or a player who is going to be tricky in a way that is hard for you to truly understand what they're doing. I think it's really important in those situations. Still at the same point, um, you know, it's e the easiest thing to write about and talk about and get a firm answer on are things that are related to game theory and math and stuff. But I, I think still the most profitable way to play in most instances is hyper exploitative mm -hmm. and distribution and combinatorics aren't going to be a huge factor in most of those decisions, but it's certainly something that's really good to have in your back pocket for when that big decision comes and you don't know what to do. I mean, the, the better a, an opponent you have, the more skilled an opponent, the more important this stuff is, right? That's where solvers come into play. That's where the combinatorics is more likely to come into play as well, I think. Um, of course, you can use combinatorics anywhere ultimately, but man, it's really helpful where, I mean, I've had lots of clients in the past, coaching clients and things like that, where this is just, I'm making up this example, but ace, queen, seven, and we have bottom set with pocket sevens and, and the hand is played out in such a way and everyone's deep enough that uh, the opponent clearly has one of three hands. They either have pocket aces, pocket queens, or ace queen. They're very, very strong. Um, and so the person with pocket sevens might say, well, I'm losing to two, two of those three hands. So 67% of the hands I'm losing to, which is sounds good, but is incorrect, right? Because right. combinatorics would tell us that is not, that is nowhere near right, right? That right. it's actually, there's more combos of ace queen than there are combined of pocket aces and pocket queens. And so actually we can eat, we can comfortably call and not worry about the cooler aspect of it. And sometimes we lose and that's fine. So on, on a basic level, it can be important for um, even newer players, I think. But, uh, but really, I'm only uh, engaging with that stuff for the most part when I'm playing up against um, people who I consider to be more pros and I have to have some level of balance. So where I'm thinking about, you know, I, I can't just fold here um, because if I fold here, this person's just going to eat me alive. Right. And there are some players where you can fold like the second best hand in your range because they literally always have the nuts when they play it like right. that, you know? So I feel like that's still more important than these very small dimensional advantages you can gain through combinatorics and, and other game theory aspects uh, as a whole when you're playing against the general population. Cool. So let's look at two of the hands um, that you offer commentary on. And I want to start with um, the Joe McKeon versus, uh, what's his name, Ian something? Ian Steinman. Ian Steinman. And I choose this one because it is an example of what we're talking about. Yeah. A very famous player, the very famous hand, and it's been analyzed by all sorts of other people, including Doug Polk. And, you know, what do, and you, and you have a very long discussion compared to some of the other discussions here. You know, what do you, um, what's the highlights of this hand for you? Why should we listen to, to Grant and Jonathan on, on this one in particular when we have so many uh, other commentary sources? Well, uh, you know, that's, that's a fair question. I think it's because when you're listening to us, when we're talking about something, we are coming from a place of authority where we believe we know what we're talking about, but we're also learning as we go in every instance. If you listen to our podcast, it's a process of learning where often we'll start at one spot and end up in a completely different spot. And 
So we believe that the way that we do it, the, the methodology that we have is effective at finding interesting answers, whether or not they can be correct, that at least you learn along the way. And that's a, a big value for the listeners of the podcast. Now, the book is more concrete because it's, you know, been analyzed over and over again by us. And we've really thought out what we were going to say. But that's born of that type of analysis where whether or not we're 100% correct with what we're saying uh, in each spot, we, we stand by the thoughts behind what we're saying. And we think there's value there, whether or not it's 100% right. You know, another thing too is Doug Polk, who, you know, for a while anyway, was making a lot of poker videos and doing a similar kind of poker video to what we were doing. I mean, different in that it was his own style and he certainly had a lot more viewers than us and has a much better resume than us and all these things, much more successful than us. Um, but one of, the, one of the criticisms of Doug Polk, not necessarily that we have, but I've seen a lot of is how he will, um, with certain hands, not actually really come down on any one side. He'll say, well, this is a spot mm -hmm. where you call sometimes, you fold sometimes, you do this sometimes, you do that sometimes. And that's it, you know, and that's his, that's his whole his whole thing. That isn't always true, but that is often true. And we actually almost never do that. Um, we come down much more strongly with sort of an opinion about something. Sometimes we disagree with each other. And actually this, this hand right here is an example of that. But still, we are more likely, I think, than most to sort of say, this is what we think is the optimal play, as best as we can determine. So if someone's looking for guidance, here's, here's our best shot at it. You know, and, I, and so we're willing to plant flags, I think, more than at least some other folks some of the time. I, that doesn't mean we're always right when we plant the flag. So you could make an opposite case that that isn't always such a, such a positive thing. But, you know, based on our current level of knowledge at any one point, we're, we're doing our best to say this is what we think is best. And, uh, and we're, we're willing to sort of take the criticism to be wrong about that, too, which we, certainly, which we sometimes do. Right. So your, your dialogue um, and the disagreement, which caught my eye on this one, is really important to you in terms of, of what you offer. Absolutely. I, I mean, just as, as an example, I don't think there's any way in the world I could have a solo podcast that did the same thing that we do. We need each other to bounce things off of yeah. and we need to disagree sometimes, although we do typically think in a very similar fashion, you know, if we're taking us versus the swath, entire swath of the poker playing population. But we have enough disagreement that there's a lot to learn from each other and even from ourselves as we try to figure out our own arguments. And we, we, we really think there's a lot of value there. And, you know, every hand in this book, and not just this book, like if I think about our podcast, every hand we do on our podcast is us talking about a, one poker hand for 45 minutes or an hour, which almost no one does. I think, in fact, no one else does that. We've been doing that for five years. And so when you say, why should someone listen to us? We're willing to sort of really mine the depths of every like branch on the decision tree and debate about it, argue about it, uh, sort of do what we used to call thought experiments where we say, well, what if he, instead of him having to say, what if he had that hand, what would we do instead? If he had spades here, what, what's a, should he still be raising or should he call? To just try and like examine every piece of it and every aspect, not just of the gameplay, but also the situation and the player images and every, every piece as best we can. So we're trying anyway to shine a light on every aspect of the hand um, so we don't miss anything at all. And whether we're successful or not is, is up to, you know, each individual viewer, listener, and reader. But that's what's going on. And that's certainly what happened in this hand where we had originally made a podcast about this hand, which I think was an hour long. And uh, the amount of time we spent discussing just this one hand, this McKeon-Stein hand, I don't even know. Like, like, we've debated it so many times just personally when we've, like, you know, been hanging out or something. It's like, it's insane. <laughs> it's a very interesting hand. It is. Yeah. I mean, it really, really is. So...
yeah, so we, we put a lot of time into it. I'll say that and a lot of care. Yeah, seems like a great discussion and your podcasts certainly do. As far as I'm concerned, they're probably the most thorough of, of any podcast out there in terms of hand history analysis. Uh, the last one I want to um, ask you about, I was wondering mainly just curiosity, out of curiosity, uh, an interesting way to play aces seems like the way it was played in this post pluribus era was in a very modern um, range versus range sort of way. Was that at the end because of that, because this is an advanced hand or why did this one end up to close the chapter? I think it's because of how difficult it was for us to, tr I mean, I, the way that we rated the hands, we spent a lot of time trying to order the hands after we did all of the hands and decide which one were the, were the hardest. The way that we rated the hands was to find the hands that had the most difficulty for us to actually come to a clean conclusion on. And I felt like this was the hardest hand for us as a, as a duo to come to a clean conclusion on what exactly was each player thinking and what is correct. And, and is this based on balance or exploit or what's happening here? Just because just like, just for a quick overview, it's a, the eight, nine, five flop. And sure, that seems like a range advantage for the big blind that called, but aces checks back. That's normal. Fine. Sometimes that happens, but then aces checks back on the turn again and then raises the river, which is not an ace, by the way, yeah. it's a Jack. And I, I, so I don't really think that's necessarily like, you can't really put that in a modern range based thing entirely. There's some exploit going on there or something else. It feels like to me, which is why it seemed like the most complex hand to me. I mean, yeah, the, the order of the book is very much what we think from a reader point of view of like the hands start off more simply and get more and more complicated. And we think that's the most ah. complex book for a reader okay. um, to, or the most complex hand, excuse me, for a reader to understand. And so that's, that's why it, it's the last one in the book. But we had a big debate even about what was more complex, the Joe McKeon hand that we were just talking about or this one. They're both, they're clearly the two most complex hands in the book anyway. And they're the ones we had, we struggle the most with, I think, as like trying to figure out and uh, have the most disagreement about, I would say, probably in the whole book. Yeah, awesome. especially the McKeon. Yeah. Well, it's um, congratulations on producing this. It must be very satisfying to, to get this out there. I mean, we're, we're pretty happy with it so far. Yeah, thank you. We appreciate it. Um, we really like how it looks too, which is something that's fun for us. You know, we had to, because we self-published, but we found some good people to do the artwork and uh, it, came out really nice looking. So we're happy about that as well. Yeah, we really are. We're very pleased with how it came out. feels good. Yeah, it looks, it looks really good. Uh, we've, I've grilled you a lot um, on the book, on other things. And now I'd like to, as we wrap up, um, you provide all this content. Who's, who's producing the content you like? Give us, tell us what Jonathan and Grant like to watch in terms of poker content. Um, I would say the thing I'm watching the most these days in terms of poker content is Alvin teaches poker, who's doing uh, GTO poker videos using, uh, I think he's mostly using Pio these days, but I really enjoy his stuff. He is doing, like he thinks so differently than me. It's really useful and really enjoyable just to, uh, to see somebody break down stuff. And he also, uh, him and Berkey have big issues too, actually, now that I think about it, which is <laughs> enjoyable that Berkey's gone after Alvin. Alvin takes shots back at Berkey. We never take a shot back, back, back at Berkey, I guess. This, this podcast is the closest we've ever come to it even. But Alvin just swings away. And uh, that's not why I like him. I like him because of his analysis. But I, th I think he's doing a great job. Uh, for me, I think the, the things that have caught my eye the most over the past couple of years 
have been Doug Polk videos that were not hand analysis videos. When he, when he kind of weighs in from yeah. his perspective on, on a major issue that's happening in poker. And be, besides that, of course, anything that had to do with Mike Postle for a while it caught my eye, you know, because that was, you know, obviously it captivated all of us and had the entire world on fire. It was on Sports Center. I couldn't believe it, you know, like what a deal that was. So, yeah, I, I mean, I guess so. It's not, I, I'm not really into super high level analysis stuff, I guess, which is interesting. I, I just want to see like the celebrity gossip of poker. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's real. Uh, as a content creator in RFID, table uh, manager when that happened were you uh concerned did that get your attention in a little bit of way very much so uh we changed things almost immediately actually we started taking everyone's cell phones and smart watches no one's allowed to wear a hat anymore while we play we um created a much uh much more clear barrier between uh, the peak room, which wasn't really a, a room at that point anyway, uh, and the players in the table. We always had people who we trusted doing it. It was usually one of the two of us actually sort of doing the production piece of it. And so we were never worried about that. We never played, we ne never played on the show because we were always worried about questions of integrity, although we would have loved to play in that 510 game. We still would. Uh, it's fantastic. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but beyond that, yeah, there were, we immediately changed some of the, some stuff around and as, uh, we now move into a new location because Portland Meadows, as Grant mentioned earlier on the show, is shutting down. So we're, it's moving to a new location. We're going to move there as well for shooting this show. Uh, we're going to have a, a better setup with even better security. Right. And in order to uh, the, the clear difference between us and Stones is that we are recording and then producing later. So there's no live feed going out yeah. that anybody mm. can capture. Currently. Currently. Right. So in the new location, we'll, we actually get to start from scratch and end and really set it up in a way that ha can have a lot of integrity for live streaming, which we wouldn't have felt comfortable with our current setup doing. We, that's right. part of why we are recorded only for now. But yeah, we did actually change a lot of the security measures just based on Mike Postel. And, you know, it makes you wonder, is, are there other people doing that? You know, you worry. I worry for sure. Yeah. Not so much on our show because we see the win rates and we see the decisions players are making. But in general, yeah, I wonder sometimes about some of the other players out there. It's a concern. Uh, well, it's been great talking to you both. I'm going to close things down now. Um, I wish you well with your book and, and good luck with your continuing amazing content. Uh, anything last you'd like to, to say to the audience before we sign off? Uh, yeah, I mean, we are the Poker Guys. That's where you can find us online. It's easy to find us on YouTube and Twitter and everything. But most importantly, you should go to our website, thepokerguys.net. That's where you can get the book. There's an ebook for purchase right there, or there's a link that brings you to the Amazon page where you can get the book as well. We highly recommend it. I've read it. It's great. Uh, <laughs> and wow. we, we want to thank you, Chris, for having us on. Yeah, it was great being on here. Thanks, Chris. No problem. And we'll get those details up on the site as well. So signing off for the zoo. Thanks to everyone. Thanks to Dean for producing. Uh, this is Chris. Uh, good night. Thank you for once again tuning in to the Poker Zoo. We appreciate all of our listeners. Be sure to tell a friend about us. You can find us at persuadio.nl or simply do a search for the Poker Zoo. If you would like to contact us, you may do so at thepokerzoo at gmail.com or persuadio at gmail.com. We will answer any and all questions the best we can about poker, barbecue, barbershop singing, or web hosting, as it turns out. Gifts are always welcome, and in fact, 
a listener came up to me in the poker room last week and handed me a spice bottle of their own company blend of seasonal, kind of seasonal spices, and uh, we've been putting that on many of the things we've been cooking. It's very delicious, so we are thankful to Matt for that. Speaking of cooking, hope you had pork and sauerkraut for your New Year's Day celebrations, as that is supposed to bring you good luck for the year. In fact, I think I forgot to say at the beginning, Happy New Year to any and all. And that brings our first episode of 2020 to a close. Uh, See you next time.